says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also learned from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. And Father, we humble ourselves before you in this moment, just asking, Lord, help us now to continue in our worship, that we'd submit our hearts and our ears to the voice of you as the living God through your living and active and inspired word that you gave to us. Your same Spirit that... Lord wrote and recorded and breathed out these truths. May he now be our helper and our interpreter and our teacher. So we ask, speak to us, Lord, and give us an ear to hear and an expectant heart. And we ask you to bless your word as we open it and look at it together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, it's often been said before that a little bit of encouragement can go a long way. A little bit of encouragement can go a long way. And I think that's especially, especially true as it comes to building relationships and, and maintaining relationships and uh, creating as well sometimes an openness, even in people's hearts in relationships creating an openness as we use encouragement to give them maybe a little bit more of an aptitude to want to hear what we might have to say to them sometimes in a situation. When you use a little bit of encouragement, sometimes it sort of disarms people, it softens their heart, it allows them to be open to hear what you may need to share with them and really what they may need to hear as well. And as Paul opens up this letter to the Colossians, you notice he starts out commending them regarding the good things that he heard were happening among them. And he makes mention of some of those things here. He's kind of identifying and celebrating the spiritual fruit that God has brought forth among them as a people there in Colossae. And he's trying to encourage them spiritually. And that kind of encouragement would soften their hearts and help them to be receptive to the other things we're going to see Paul will share all throughout this letter that were very important spiritual truths that they particularly needed to hear as a group of believers. And as I think about encouragement and what Paul's doing here encouraging, it makes me realize that if we were to be honest, it's very easy, is it not, to identify what's wrong in other people. It comes very naturally to us as people in our sinfulness to see flaws and to mention people's flaws, whether it's to them or to talk about them to other people as we do sometimes to point out. And listen, there's a time to identify error and there's a, there's a, a, a purpose in that. But may God help us as we see Paul here doing this. May God help us to make a little better effort to maybe work harder to recognize the good things that we see happening in people's lives 
uh, and to perhaps identify and maybe make mention of at times and celebrate the good things that we see God doing as he's working in people's lives and to share those things a little bit more intentionally as we see Paul doing here. And his approach really as he does this is very helpful. And as we begin a new letter together, we kind of let's lay a little background, a little foundation that will help in understanding the letter as a whole before we jump in. But Paul's intention of writing in this way at the beginning of the letter to give some encouragement really in this situation is all the more helpful because as far as we know, Paul himself did not directly plant or start this particular church there in Colossae. From what evidence we have, we don't see any indication that Paul even visited this congregation where there was a church at there in Colossae. Uh, It seems that these believers are people who Paul's never met and he's never ministered to directly. It's most likely that this church was established, you could say, indirectly by Paul's ministry that happened in the area of Ephesus, where Paul did plant a church in Ephesus and where the Bible tells us Paul was there for a number of years teaching the word of God. Acts chapter 19 tells us as the result of the church that Paul planted and he was pastoring in Ephesus. It tells us that as Paul was there teaching the word of God, the Bible says that all who then lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. The idea there is that as Paul was teaching the word of God faithfully in the church of Ephesus and ministering to people and discipling them, that as a result, like a ripple effect, the word of God began to reach other surrounding territories, other communities all around what would be Asia Minor. So the ministry of that church in Ephesus had sort of a ripple effect in other cities and regions because believers likely then took the gospel and went into other areas and believers went into other areas and it seems established and planted new churches and likely the origin of this church of Colossae that we're now reading about and Colossae is in the area of Asia Minor in what would today be known as modern day Turkey. And Paul likely, as a result of his ministry there, this was probably sort of an offshoot of his teaching ministry in Ephesus that impacted all of Asia. And it seems likely that the man mentioned in verse 7 and 8, Epaphras, he's also mentioned in chapter 4, was more than likely the one who was the pastor at Colossae in this church that Paul is writing to and that he brought word to the Apostle Paul things going on and as a result of that Paul's heart was stirred and he then took up his pen and he wrote this spiritual letter to the people who were there in the church of Colossae wanting to help their spiritual development. Colossians as well as Philippians and some of the other New Testament letters is one of what we call Paul's prison epistles. And what we mean by that is it's one of the letters that Paul wrote during the time of one of his few imprisonments for faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at times, it's almost as if God would allow Paul to have a little mandatory downtime. And rather than being able to be out as a missionary or preaching or planting churches, sometimes God would allow him to get arrested and he'd be there in prison. But as a result of that, sovereignly, we've received some really wonderful things in our New Testament Bible as the result of Paul's mandatory downtime. And I I say that's very interesting to think about because... Here's Paul imprisoned, and in his time of personal difficulty, he's not focusing on himself. He's not focusing on his circumstances in the difficult time, but instead, in this imprisonment, he directs his attention to how he might help others. 
And in his difficulty, instead of saying, woe is me, or focusing on his circumstances, he instead very wisely uses his time to think about others and decides, really, if you want to think of it this way, to kind of just bloom the best that he could from right where he was planted at the time, which was in prison, not a very pleasant circumstance. And as a result of Paul thinking that way, he shares this letter, he writes these things, and we get some of the most profound truths not just the New Testament, but the entire Bible in this letter because Paul found himself in prison for a time. The book of Colossians is a small book, only four chapters, but it is filled, you'll see, with huge amounts of glorious truth. This book in the Bible is probably one of the best books that directly addresses the doctrine of the person of Jesus Christ. This is one of the most incredible revelations we have regarding the person of Jesus. Many proclamations upholding and explaining the supremacy and the sufficiency of the person and the work and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ for our spiritual life. It's a letter written to help encourage believers to keep Christ central and to keep the focus on the Lord and on the Lord himself and not other peripheral things that people may perceive as a part of the spiritual life. The theme of this book, you could simply say, is the supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ for our spiritual lives. The supremacy and sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ for spiritual life. We'll find some of the most profound statements regarding the superiority and the importance and the rulership and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll find great proclamations regarding Jesus' sufficiency in his person and who he was as God in the flesh. The sufficiency of Jesus' work that he accomplished in his death and resurrection. The sufficiency of the power of his life living within us when we accept him as Lord and Savior to help us in our spiritual life to realize that we are complete and sufficient in Christ if we had nothing else at all ever given to us in our spiritual life, that Jesus is enough. And he wrote this letter to combat and to counter some false teaching in the spiritual life that was threatening the church. So we know that Paul kind of had an agenda as he's writing this letter, particularly it was the growing influence of what were called the Gnostics, which sort of set forth a belief system called Gnosticism. We'll talk about this as we go through. The word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which is a term that literally means to have knowledge or to know. And the Gnostics were a supposed group of people who represented themselves kind of to be in the know spiritually. And the idea of is in the know in a way that other people weren't. They kind of perceived themselves and represented themselves as like this spiritually elite group uh, who claimed to have the deeper mysteries of spirituality that other people who were less spiritual than them had not attained to. So they kind of developed this religious system, this spiritual system that kind of gave the idea conveying that there was only a select few, only a special group of people themselves who had attained to this higher knowledge of spirituality, of gnosis, these deep esoteric spiritual mysteries and truths. And only a certain select group had obtained to these superior spiritual understandings and therefore they had become more 
spiritual and more deeply spiritual than everyone else who was not a part of their Gnostic group. And so they felt that they could, in a sense, help other people who were less spiritual to arrive at these deeper forms of gnosis, of knowledge, that they could bring people into the deeper life spiritually and and help them to attain to their higher level of spirituality. So they implied that they had discovered, if you would, kind of the secrets of the higher life. They had discovered the mysteries of deeper spirituality and they kind of gave the impression that they held the keys. That if you really want to come into spirituality, we are the group, we are the organization, we are the belief system, the religious system, that we hold the keys to true spirituality. And unfortunately, they entice people to embrace their system to find this higher form of spiritual life. And what they were doing and what their system believed, Gnosticism, was total heresy. It was complete false doctrine. It mixed together philosophical ideas of the Greek culture with the strict religious adherences of Judaism and kind of mingled the two together to establish their system, which really was completely heretical because, number one, it denied the deity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was God in the flesh. It also diminished many of the fundamental truths of the person and the lordship of Jesus and what his life was about and accomplished. It also substituted and exalted a religious system as a way to coming into the higher and deeper life spiritually. It took the focus off Jesus and indicated what he did was not sufficient for a person to have a relationship with God. And it conveyed many wrong ideas. It caused people to kind of put their reliance, listen, on a system. Put their reliance on a system of spiritual routines and religious rituals and observances among their system that if you follow that system, that would be the thing that would assure you spirituality. If you kept to the system and it allowed freedom to really live as you wished morally, you could live however you wanted morally as long as you just followed their system and dotted your eyes and followed all the little regulations of the system, you could pretty much live however else you want. So you can see the wrong ideas and the false uh, theology that was presented. So Paul, having heard these things, knowing the influence of Gnosticism, writes now to counter this wrong system in this letter and to give correct doctrine about Jesus and what it really means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And that's why he really emphasizes the sufficiency of Christ and the supremacy of Christ to help these believers not be misdirected. Look with me back in verse 1. Let's begin to look at Paul's introduction here. He starts out by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother. So as was typical in these ancient letters where they were written on scrolls that you would unravel to read, it was very typical that the author would introduce themselves at the beginning of the letter rather than wait to sign their name at the end, which is typical with what we do in modern writing of letters. We sign the name at the end. They would put their name at the beginning, first of all, so you didn't have to sometimes unravel a really long scroll to find out who it was from. And secondarily, they just felt that it was appropriate before they wrote what they wrote to indicate who the source was from. Uh, you know, that might be really helpful in a lot of those. If I read at the beginning who the source was from, I may not read certain letters. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, I don't think I want to read the rest of that. You know, delete the email or whatever. 
So uh, they identified themselves at the front, and we see Paul doing this. And notice Paul introduces himself and identifies himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Sometimes Paul refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Other times he refers to himself, as we see here, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. It seems when Paul needed to offer some correction and theological uh, you know, adjustment to wrong ideas, he often would refer to himself in the title of an apostle of Jesus Christ to establish his credibility. Again, the word apostle the term literally just means a sent one. That's what the word apostle means. And it implies someone who is sent forth in the authority of another person to accomplish their business on their behalf, like someone being sent from the throne of a king with the authority of that king. And that's the idea of an apostle, someone who's sent forth with the authority of another. So Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, was given his authority directly from the throne of of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was someone who was sent forth in the authority of the Lord. His spiritual authority was something he received from the Lord Jesus. It wasn't his own authority. It was an authority from Jesus given to him to go forth and minister on Jesus' behalf. And so Paul refers to himself in this way, establishing his credibility as he writes theological truths for this church. And notice he identifies as well, indicating that he became an apostle. Look at it there, verse 1. An apostle of Jesus Christ, he says, by the will of God. Now that's important. Again, what Paul's indicating, he's saying, look, this is not something I chose for myself. You know, I didn't grow up one day and say, well, it'd be really neat to maybe be an apostle. So, you know, what school do you go to for that? Or what seminary or what qualifications do you need? Being an apostle was not something that Paul chose for himself. It wasn't something he tried to work towards. That maybe if I can just keep progressing through the ranks of the church, ultimately I can kind of get to that apostle position somehow. Rather, Paul indicates this is what I am by the will the decision, choice, determination of God. So he's saying, this isn't something I chose for myself. This was something God chose for me. And what Paul's indicating that he was what he was by the will of God is that this is what God selected him to be. And Paul was simply obeying God's commission for him. He just had accepted the calling that God had put upon his life. He had just embraced what God had assigned for him to do and function in the way that God chose him to function in. He was what he was by the will of God. And for every one of us here this morning, in the same way, God has a specific plan for your life. God has a purpose for you. God hasn't just called you to know Jesus Christ. God also has given you a calling in Jesus Christ to be who he wants you to be in your Christian walk and relationship, to be what he wants you to be by the will of God. And you can, in a sense, remove Paul's name and remove Paul's title and role there and insert your name there. For some of you, it, it, it may be your name, Sally or Betty or Sue, a, a, a mother by the will of God or you know, a teacher by the will of God, or you know, a gas station attendant by the will of God, or a Sunday school teacher by the will of God, an usher by the will of God, you know, a worship leader by the will of God. And again, we can remove our name. The important thing is to find out who and what you are by the will of God. 
And let me just say, that's the highest calling of God for your life. Not trying to be what someone else is, but to know and be what God's called you to be by the will of God. And the best way you can know what God's will is for your life is walk with God. As you walk with God, he'll reveal what you are by the will of God and then embrace it in faith, walk in that authority and assurance and be who the Lord's directed you to be. Paul also indicates in verse 1 there, notice with this letter that he's together with Timothy. And we know Timothy was sort of Paul's understudy in the ministry. He was a younger man, less experienced in ministry, who Paul kind of took under his wing to train and to mentor. A part of this beautiful New Testament pattern we see where Paul would take other men and disciple them. They would learn as they ministered with Paul. And then ultimately, Timothy, we know, ends up sort of taking on more responsibility as Paul entrusts it to him. Paul then goes on in verse 2 to begin to address who he's writing to. He says, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Notice Paul references the Christians he's writing to with kind of two titles here. And not only two titles, but I also see indicating two addresses, you could say, or, or two simultaneous positions that these Christians held at this time. One of the positions or one of the titles is spiritual in Christ. The other is somewhat practical and physical in Colossae. That was their geographic location. So Paul writes to them spiritually. He labels them, notice, as saints. That's a title he gives to these believers, saints. Now, that's a, this is important because depending upon what your background is, biblically speaking, a saint is not a person who's arrived at some elevated spiritual status, who through a godly life, through service and things they've done, kind of now have a special measure of godliness that superseded everyone else and they've kind of arrived to this elite status of being a, a saint and they kind of become a part of the spiritual hall of fame and so now they're they got a statue erected to them maybe and they become saint so and so and maybe they're venerated and in some cases even perhaps prayed to listen the bible knows nothing of that mentality of a saint that's a man-made idea that's not a biblical teaching the bible uses the word saint as a title to make a reference to any believer that's in jesus christ those two things in verse 2 there actually go together to the saints who are in Christ. The word saint is just a, a Greek word that, that means to be set apart. It's the term hagios in the Greek. It means to be set apart for special use or holiness. It's a title the Bible uses for any believer generically. That if you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you've been set apart from the world and the system of the world. You're no longer in your sin. You are now in Christ. You're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you've taken on his identity and you've been set apart to serve the Lord and to live with him. As a result of coming to Jesus, we're made one with him spiritually and our identity and our position spiritually from heaven's perspective is that God sees us one with Christ in Christ. That's our identity before God. It's the same way as how when a woman gets married. When, a, when my wife entered into a marriage relationship with me as a result of that union, her identity changed. She, a, she became a wife. That's a new identity. And B, her name changed. She took on a new identity. She's now in the Montemuro family. That's in, in the same way spiritually. When we enter into a relationship with Christ, 
our identity changes. We're no longer in the world. We're no longer in our sin. We are now in Christ, married to him, and we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's how God looks at us. Paul's going to say in this letter that our life is hidden with Christ in God. So when God looks at your life, he doesn't see you in your sin. He doesn't see you in any of your past sins and mistakes. He doesn't even see you, this is better news, in your present struggles with sin. By your faith, he sees you righteously robed and hidden in the life of Jesus Christ. And God relates to you with that favor in the same way he would his own son, Jesus Christ. But while we're currently living in this life in a relationship with Christ, these believers were also, Paul says, verse 2, dwelling where? In Colossae. That was their, if you would, earthly assignment until they arrived at their heavenly destination. They were in Christ. That was their spiritual position. But until they arrived in heaven together with Christ in his presence, right now their earthly assignment was they were in Colossae. That was the geographic location that God had planted them in specifically as a group of believers. That was where God positioned them. And he commends them, notice in verse 2, for being faithful brethren while they were living in Colossae. And I think that goes together. The word faithful speaks of a firm adherence to what's right. When we think of faithful, we think of someone who's dependable, someone who's devoted to what's right. They're reliable, they're trustworthy. And these Christians there in Colossae realize they've been set apart from the world system to live out a life in relationship with Jesus Christ and to serve the Lord faithfully there in Colossae that where they had been established geographically, their community, there they were to be right where they lived, a witness for Christ, to have an impact for Christ, to try and serve the Lord Jesus Christ where they were, where God had put them. So again, we might read this letter, reading it to ourselves in verse 2, to the saints who are in Northfield. Or maybe to the saints, if you live in, you know, Marmora or, or Ventnor or Atlantic City or Margate or Mays Landing, to the saints who are, put your geographic location in there. The question is this, is are we being faithful? Are we being faithful brethren and faithful sisterin where God's put us? where we've been planted at. That's our place of influence and where we in our earthly assignment are to be impacting people for Christ living faithfully. Paul goes on to say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the typical Pauline greeting extending grace and peace. He wanted people to experience the grace of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and it's through that experience that we can then know God's peace. We have peace with God. And we experience the peace of God through that relationship. So a typical greeting in the New Testament. He then goes on in verse 3 saying, We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. So notice Paul expresses how thankful he was to God for the work that God was doing in their lives. And he also wanted them to know, we see from verse three, he wanted them to be aware. He wasn't just thanking God for them. He says, I also want you to know, he says, that I am praying always for you. He wanted them to know that. Now, next week, when we get to verse nine and move onward, we'll see exactly what and how Paul was praying for them. But at least we see here that he was encouraging them, that he was grateful for them, 
And he wanted them to be aware that he was praying for them regularly. And can I just say, how encouraging must that have felt to hear that? To hear Paul say, I, you know, I just want you to know I thank God for you. And I want you to know I pray for you all the time. I keep you before the Lord in prayer. Good thing to ask ourselves this morning. Are there certain people in your life that you're truly thankful for? I hope there are some people in your life that when you think of them, you say, you know, well, I just thank God for so-and-so. Or someone that maybe as you're praying, as you are praying, you just find yourself, even when you're praying and in the Lord's presence, saying, Lord, thank you so much for him. Or, Lord, thank you so much for her. And I just pray that you, out of thankfulness, you begin to just intercede for them because they're so you know, much a person of, of that gratitude overwhelms your heart and that gratitude translates into because you're so appreciative of them, it makes you want to pray for them, for God's best for them, for God's hand to be upon them, his protection, his blessings, so forth. And what a wonderful example Paul sets here that he actually took time to say it out loud with his words. He actually took time in this letter, this writing of correspondence to tell them that he was thankful and that he was praying. And I think what a great example there to let people actually know whether we write them a text or we write them an email or we find some way of course just to actually tell somebody once in a while, hey, I want you to know, I thank God for you. And I want you to know I'm praying for you. Perhaps maybe even this week, the Lord may want to use us like Paul's correspondence here to express the same kind of encouragement. And then he goes on in verse four and five to say what he was actually thankful for, what he specifically was commending them for and celebrating the work that God had done in their lives. He says, we give thanks to God, verse four, ever since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, your love for all the saints, because of the hope, he says, which is laid up for you in heaven. So notice he was thankful for their commitment to Jesus Christ and the work that God was doing among them there as a group of people. He rejoices, first of all, we see in verse 4, he's rejoicing, it says, over their faith in Christ Jesus. Their faith, keyword in Christ Jesus. Because that's what began the change in their spiritual lives. There was no church in Colossae, there were no Christians in Colossae until the first person put faith in Christ Jesus. And I'm emphasizing in because, listen, it's not just that they had some faith. Everybody to agree, to some degree has faith. That's why the way that we're saved is through faith because it's the one capacity every human being has. If it was intelligence, a lot of us would be in trouble. If it was talent, others of us would be in trouble. If it was physical accomplishments, others of us would be in trouble because I can't do those things. I physically am incapacitated. But but everybody has the capacity to believe because believing is a choice. We all exercise faith. Every one of you this morning exercised faith. You came in this room and when you walked into this room, you didn't get down, examine, check if the bolts were tight on the chair. You just sat down as an expression of faith that that chair was going to hold all of your girth and you were not going to end up falling on the floor. You believe that when you sat, that chair was going to hold you up. When you turned on the electric this morning, I flipped the light switch. I don't understand how light switches and electric works and all that kind of stuff. I just turned it on believing, though I don't understand it, when I do this, lights are going to come on. That's an expression of faith. We choose to believe in something. We may not fully understand, but we believe something's going to happen. We believe something is true. 
And the same way, it's a choice to believe spiritually as well. And when it comes to spiritual life and our eternal destiny, the important thing is the object of our faith. To just have faith is not good enough. It's the object of our faith that is the critical thing. What is your faith in? Who is your faith in? Notice their faith was in Christ Jesus. Their faith was not in, listen, Christianity. Their faith was not in a religion. Their faith was not in a church, a particular denomination or system of a church. Their faith was not in themselves. Their faith was not in their good works. Their faith was in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That was the object of their faith. They were trusting in Jesus, relying on Jesus as the only one who could help them. Their full dependency and trust was in Jesus as the only one to spare them. Jesus as the only one that could save them. Depending upon what Jesus accomplished, John chapter 3 verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides or remains upon him. See, listen, when we believe, choose to believe, that we truly are sinful people, when we choose to believe that we are sinners and that our sin deserves eternal punishment in hell, that will cause a person to look then for a way to escape hell. That will cause a person to search for a way to be saved or spared from the consequence of eternal damnation for their sin. And that's the reason the Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. The Bible tells us they were to call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And that's why we must put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Jesus died in our place, took the punishment for our sins, rose to life again so as the living victorious Savior, he can now offer forgiveness of sins and he can deliver us from the power and penalty of our sins if we come to him and trust and depend upon him as the one we're relying on to do that. Galatians 2 says, knowing a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. How wonderful when a person truly puts their faith in Jesus Christ, not in church, not in the Bible, not in, 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 in Christianity, but in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and puts their faith in the only one who can spare me from hell, the only one who can forgive my sin, the only one who can save my soul is the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, I must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. Paul also commended them as well because he says, we've heard, verse 4, of your love for all the saints. This was a church that was marked, apparently, by an incredible love for one another. They truly cared about each other. And Paul's commending them for this. He mentions the end of verse 8 regarding their love in the spirit that Epaphras had told them about. And the love of God being exercised among them was really the natural byproduct of putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and becoming children of God. See, we need to realize these two tied together, faith in Christ and love for the saints, other Christians. That's the natural outcome of being born again spiritually. 
When a person puts their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into their life. They're awakened spiritually. They begin a spiritual life and they then become a part of the family of God, a part of an eternal family. And God now becomes legitimately, spiritually their father and they inherit brothers and sisters in Christ. And soon after we discover, once we become a Christian, arising in our heart in this supernatural way is a love for other Christians, a love for other brothers and sisters who we've now been joined to spiritually and eternally. And all of a sudden, we find this love for other Christians because we see them as brothers and sisters. 1 John chapter 3 says it this way in verse 14. He says, we know we passed from death to life because we love the brethren. One of the ways we can tell if we've truly experienced salvation, that we've passed from spiritual death to spiritual life is because we now love the brethren, Christians. It's a natural thing in a biological family to have an automatic love for your biological family. It's just inherently there. Well, to a deeper degree, the same applies spiritually. When you become a part of the family of God by a spiritual experience of the Holy Spirit of God coming into your life, you begin to find all of a sudden you have a love for other spiritual family members. I remember this so clearly when I first got saved. I had no interest in Christians before I got saved. I didn't want to be around Christians before I got saved. They made me feel guilty. They told me truths that I didn't want to hear. I didn't want to live the way they wanted to live. But when I truly surrendered to Jesus Christ, all of a sudden I found this love in my heart for other Christians. All of a sudden I had interest in wanting to be with Christians. I wanted to spend time with Christians. I cared about Christians. I wanted to be at church with Christians. I, I found this bond and connection to other Christians. It had never been there before. But what had happened is I had passed from death to life and now there was a love for the saints. And this is one of the things that happens. And that love that develops there is something we're to grow in practically and walk in. We shouldn't just have that initial love, but we should exemplify love. We should walk in love towards one another, trying to continually through our care and the way we relate to one another and serve one another to try and have love for the saints. Let me just say, Paul's commending this church for their love for the saints, indicating that was a mark of a healthy church. They loved one another. They weren't biting and devouring and yeah, we get together and we have a spiritual pep rally, but we are the meanest, nastiest people on earth besides that. And boy, we can get up a good hoot and holler, but we don't really care about each other and we will cut each other off as quick as can be and not care for one another. That's not healthy. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That should be a characterizing mark of a healthy church, an atmosphere of love that exists there. And Paul says in verse 5, their faith in Christ and love for the saints had a reason. He says, verse 5, it was because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. So they lived on earth as they did because they had a hope of an eternal reward that was awaiting them. In a sense, Paul's saying there with that word because, he's saying the future hope of heaven is the cause of them putting their faith in Christ and also the cause of the love that they had for each other as brethren. And this is a completely accurate description of the Christian experience. Heaven is our motivation and purpose for why and how we live as Christians on earth. In other words, Paul's saying, we put faith in Christ Jesus because of the hope of heaven that we know is awaiting for us. 
It's the fact that we know that Jesus has assured us one day we'll enter into heaven. That's what motivates us to put and to keep our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the hope of heaven that's attached to that, that that's where we want to go and what Jesus has promised us. In John 14, Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I've told you, I would have told you, I go prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am there, you will be also. Listen, one of the reasons I put my faith in Jesus Christ is because of the hope of heaven. I want to go to heaven, not hell. One of the reasons I keep my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is because I know there's a hope of heaven ahead. And I want to experience that with my Lord and I look forward to that and it keeps my reliance upon the Lord. And one of the reasons as well, Paul says, we should be expressing love for the saints is because of that hope of heaven. And we know it's the right thing to do and that we're going to be rewarded one day for our love and service and care and how we minister to one another as God's people. And this morning, may the, the glorious reality of the hope of heaven be something that stimulates in us afresh a reliance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and may it also be what stirs in us a greater love for the people of God to say, you know what, I'm going to love people and serve people in love because of the hope of heaven. And there's a reward for serving in love. There's a reward for ministering to people. Now referring to that good news of heaven, Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, of which you heard before. In the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Notice he references these wonderful changes coming about as the result of, he points out in verse 5 and 6 now, of the message of the gospel coming to them. Paul reminds them here of that day when they first heard, he says it twice, when they first heard the gospel. The word gospel just means good news. And it is that good news that though we are all sinful and deserve to go to hell, forgiveness of sin and the opportunity to go to heaven is freely available to anyone who comes to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, putting their faith in him for his salvation, for his gift of eternal life, and that we have an opportunity to receive that. And it's available to us freely. And it's that good news that's offered to us. Paul calls the gospel here, notice, he calls it the word of truth. It's that simple message that clears up the lies that many people believe their whole life about what spiritual life really is. It's the simple message, the word of truth that resonates with the human soul to say, yeah, that's, that sounds accurate. That sounds like the truth. It's that liberating truth that helps us finally grasp what God really wants for us. The end of verse 6, Paul says, the day you heard the gospel, he says as well, was the day that you came to know the grace of God in truth. It was the pathway whereby they and we really come to an understanding of, wow, this is what the grace of God is about. I never knew this before. And, and the gospel message is that pathway where we realize that God wants to graciously overlook all of our sin and give us a fresh start and give us an opportunity to freely go to heaven and have a daily relationship. And when you have an impact with the grace of God through the message of the gospel, it kind of does have that wow factor on you. 
It kind of does has this ability. It's a powerful message. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And Paul's referring to here how the gospel produced fruit in their lives and not just in their lives, in all the world. And you know what? The gospel does have the ability to have that powerful effect. Paul, another translation of the same verse renders what Paul said this way here. This same good news that came to you is going out over all the world and it's changing lives everywhere just as it changed yours the first day that you heard it and understood the truth about God's great kindness to sinners. Notice, spiritual fruit from the gospel. Changed lives from the gospel. The truest indication, ladies and gentlemen, that the gospel has really impacted a person's heart is there will be spiritual fruit. Because you can't plant a divine seed in a person's soul and there not be fruit. God's seed works. And notice here, Paul says the gospel wasn't just bringing fruit in their lives and change. He says it was reaching all of the known world in that day. And can I just say, consider this without all the modern advantages. How are they doing that? I mean, they didn't have cell phones and the internet. They didn't have, you know, uh, all the, the things that we have that we so heavily rely on, that, that we utilize to a great degree. And I'm not saying these things are wrong in and of themselves, but listen, without all the modern amenities in the ancient world, the, the, the known world was hearing the gospel and fruit and people were getting saved through the simple preaching of the true gospel message of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit incredible impact was happening I can't help but to look at that I hope you do too and please join me in prayer to say God may we begin to see the same Lord they didn't have any of the stuff we had and, and people were getting saved and impact was happening it kind of causes us to almost have to reevaluate where we are with the church in these days. And referring to how they actually heard the gospel and grew in that understanding, Paul concludes in verse 7 by identifying that they had learned it from Epaphras, as we said, a dear fellow servant who's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and who declared to us your love in the Spirit. So here, as I said, is where we get insight to the fact it seems that it was Epaphras who was pastoring this church there. And Paul commends this minister there for his labor and work. And he points out two traits that he was glad to see in Epaphras. He refers to him as someone who was a servant and someone who was faithful in his ministry there in Colossae. A servant is someone who serves other people instead of serving themselves. They're willing to provide help and assistance to make other people's lives better. That's what a servant is. Someone who cares for the needs of others, performs duties to make other people's lives better. Jesus exemplified and taught servanthood as a person who would follow him. Jesus taught servant leadership, not dictatorial leadership of how many people can I get to serve me and who can I push around. And who? No, Jesus taught servant leadership, humble servanthood leadership. That's what Jesus taught. The greatest among you shall be the servant of all. And he says here as well, not only was Epaphras a servant, but Paul says also he was a faithful minister, a faithful minister of Christ Jesus. And again, the word faithful implies devoted, dedicated, somebody committed and trustworthy and reliable. A faithful person fulfills what their duty is. They, they, they carry out their commitments. Their, and let me just say, there is no, ladies and gentlemen, no greater motivation to be faithful than if we are serving Jesus Christ. 
There's no greater thing to have a reason to be faithful in than that sphere of influence and that calling and ministry and that stewardship that we're entrusted with. Paul told the Corinthians, let a man consider us servants of Christ, stewards of the mysteries of God. And he said, moreover, it's required in stewards that one be found faithful. Faithful. There's no greater reason to be faithful than the fact that you are serving Jesus Christ in however you serve him. Whether you're folding a bulletin, handing out a bulletin, teaching children, playing music, witnessing, sharing the gospel, no greater way than to be faithful in serving the Lord Jesus Christ, to be faithful to what you do. We're all to some degree in the ministry as Christians in the local church and there's no greater contribution any of us can make in serving the Lord and serving his work in the church than to seek to be, listen, number one, a servant. Just a servant. I'm looking for anything else other than I just, I'm willing to be a servant. And then on top of that, to be faithful. That whatever you commit to serve and do, that you do it faithfully in whatever capacity you're serving. And let me just say to those of you who are part of this church here who are servants, thank you. Thank you for your labor. Thank you for your assistance and bearing the load and serving in the ways that you do. It doesn't go unnoticed. And for those of you who are ministering and serving and you're being faithful in what you do, double, double thank you. Let's pray together.